Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. All right, y'all. Quick reminder that this is actually a part two with A-list producer Sheila Hanahan-Taylor. The only reason I say that is because some of what we say in this conversation is informed by the Rookie Mistakes and Genre episode, which drops Sunday. But this episode is entirely focused on pitching. And super quick, you may hear a couple moments when it sounds like the recording sort of atmosphere is changing in terms of what you're hearing from a technical standpoint. That's because our extraordinarily dedicated and conscientious producer, Sheila, sent me some beautiful pickups that answer just a couple more questions we thought you might have. So this is a full packed episode, and I'd highly encourage you to grab a pen and paper before we dive in. So I want to make sure we get to pitching because you're so good at it. Um, Now there's different pitching, right? Like, and I'd love if you have time to talk about both. One is you're a pitch, you're going to go in, you're going to pitch a whole story, you're going to leave stuff or not leave stuff. And what do you have to have in terms of accessories? There's that pitching. And then there's the pitching, what in the olden days, I don't know if if it's still called this, the elevator pitch, right? Where you you just have to, is it still called the elevator pitch? Well, maybe not in COVID, but yeah. (laughs) Right? Now it's the the Zoom meetup pitch. Let's just think about it. Okay, let's just call it the general meeting pitch, right? Where you're not going to tell them in a general meeting the whole schmozzle. You're going to just tell them something about yourself. And so could, you know, which do you want to start with? Because I want to talk about both. Let's do, let's start with the, the, what I would say is the general meeting pitch, the, the sort of concept pitch, right? And it's, I mean, yes, it was the elevator pitch. You know, I always joke that it was the dinner party pitch, like more indie movies came together over a dinner party chat than any version that I've ever heard. Right. So, okay. So for us, the thing that I love uh, writers to sort of keep in mind, because, you know, you're in this meeting and you're, as we've all sort of learned, you're trying to just get to know each other and you, your whole goal is to just keep the dialogue going and to have a long-term connection with this person. So first and foremost, number one rule, I say always pitch me the idea, not the story. Right. So that kind of goes back to what we just said. Is this an idea about redemption? Is this an idea about what happens when you lose track of your your goal in life? Whatever that case is. So instead of getting into the and then and then and then, which we're all guilty of, the more you can focus on what like sort of the big idea is, is really where I start. Another way to look at it when I say, tell me the idea, not the story is you can always, of course, tell the big plot idea. You know, uh, it's about a group of people who have to survive after their plane crash lands on an island. That's great, that's a big idea. It gives you a sense of tone and the world and you can envision the characters and whatnot. But you could also take my idea of tell me the idea, not the story, and take it to mean you should open with the bigger issues, uh, the character movement that's going to influence the story. So instead of doing big plot, which again is fine, you can do something like, I have a story that explores what happens when uh, someone decides to get out of the darkness and head for the light. Um, Maybe you could say something like, oh, uh, you know, I'm working on a small drama about how you lie to yourself all the time, but in this story, the lie finally gets so big that you've got to deal with the truth. 
and you know sometimes you can even be more specific and sort of merge the two say something like I have a you know I, um, I have a one-hour drama that happens to be about when white-collar crime comes into a family which gives you a sense of both thematic as well as plot so that is a hopefully some good examples of your idea as opposed to the story and then for me the other thing is is I think we've all been in that boat where like I get panicky because I think someone's going to talk for 25 minutes and it's not the two minute elevator pitch it was meant to be. So I love it when writers like right up front say something like, should we just give you a quick little take on it? Or, or, you know, just a little bite of what I'm working on because then I can stop panicking and actually listen. So then the next thing I like is we want to have some version of context. When you're doing short, since you're not telling the whole, the whole plot and you're not getting into all the beats, I love to have a framing device, whether it's, why you're obsessed with this topic, why you found this theme, something in everything you write, why um, this question keeps coming up and you felt like it was time to explore it. So I love it when somebody positions it up front. You know, we had <clears throat> the other day with Film Independent, um, one of the writers starts with, okay, so we've all Googled ourselves, right? But I Googled a relative and I found something that I never expected to find right? So right away, I'm emotionally engaged, right? And you're listening in a different way. So that kind of context to me is, is exactly what I'm looking for. Then sometimes also you could do um, more of like a, a story. Like I have a, a writer um, who had found a picture of Malcolm X when he was like 15 and he was super skinny and little with these giant glasses. And she was like, how does this guy become like Malcolm X, right? It, it made no sense to her. So she, she starts with that. She's like, I wanted to learn how a regular person becomes an activist, right? So that to me, context again, sort of like positioning it in a really great way. Um, and then from there, when you're doing two minutes, for me, it's all about character and it's all about what the hook is, right? So your sort of rule is, Give me a quick taste of what the world is, who your character is in this world, how they kind of see themselves in the world, and then more importantly, how other people actually see them, right? Sort of that, it's that mirror of, wow, they, they're, they think they're not cool and not, you know, slow and dumb, but everyone else thinks they're the number one in the class, whatever that is, sort of that positioning. And then from there, give me a little bit about what's happening, and then I get what the hook is. You know, it's, it's the old saying, you want the big and then, or but, or they struggle with, you know, if you look at old coverage, the, the really good log lines have these great turns of phrases where, and then that's sort of exactly what we're speaking about, forced into, or succumbs to, or finally realizes. And that to me is like the launch pad for whatever your cool hook is. So that to me is how we sum it up. And it's really hard, I know, when you're trying to boil down your project, but one of the big things we also, like, I deeply, deeply believe is the earlier and the sooner you can be pitching your project, it actually informs what you're writing because yeah, you'll start sure. to realize like what's coming out is not exactly what's on the page, but for some reason, that's what your brain is clearly hanging on to, right? So pitch it a lot early and you'll start refining where you're going with that. So so I love, I love all those little bits and pieces. Like my, one of my examples that I love to throw out is you can always use sort of that juxtaposition. Also, um, I don't believe you should use two movies because I think it gets confusing and messy, but I think it's fine to mention like one movie or one show. And then again, what's your hook? What's your different thing? What's your take? So last year we were shopping a TV show and it was a workplace comedy and it was set in an all-female firefighter house. 
and it's in the vein of bridesmaids. So right away, I was like, I get the world, I get the tone, I get what your take is. It's different than a typical firefighter show, kind of all in one fell swoop. But it took us a while to get to that. So it's also the earlier you pitch it, the more you pitch it, the more you play around, you get to it. And the, the thing we realized most is adjectives make a really big difference in the two minute pitch. The more you can find and play with those exact word combinations, it's it just, I don't know, it just makes a really big difference. So that's that's sort of my my short but sweet, I think, two minute pitch. But I have one other last thing, but Lorianne, you have a question it looks like. Yes, um, in terms of uh, talking about the comp, right? The So what I've heard is that you wanna keep the comp, either if you're writing a feature, you comp a feature. If you're writing a half hour, dramedy you comp that but like in the show I'm working on right now I really want to reference a one-hour drama for my half-hour comedy right. right because my take on the hook is so different so uh I'm just curious as a producer what your comfort level is with that like what would you have writers think about that's great and that's where I that's why I threw the bridesmaids one out because we did break the rule you're right it was a tv yeah. show mentioned a movie and it was yeah. it was kind of exactly what you're saying we felt like there was nothing else out there that was an appropriate tonal match, especially because Bridesmaid is just such a, such a girl power movie that we felt like it wasn't disservice to either project. And to yours, if, if your hook is sort of that difference, I mean, I think I would wrap my arms around it. I would just be like, whatever your, you know, insert name of hour long show, it's like this, but it's half hour and funny. Right. Well, so let's talk real quick about tone, though, because yeah. let's define it for these emerging writers, especially or honestly for the pros, because sometimes I'm even like, oh, right. Tone. Let's talk. Oh my about God. That. Well, um, I have one way to do it. How do you do it? Because I have one way. Go and for we, it. We, we worked a lot at UCLA on this when we, we did. At, we did. Oh my God. So this it was is like banging our head against the wall sometimes. Banging my head against the wall. So this is my way because it's another rookie error. Like, by the way, this pitching hopefully is adding to the rookie error list. So I was trying to do two and one. Um, this is how I describe tone. So you have the exact same scene in the exact same situation in the exact same setting. So for example, you've got a person in a car going through the McDonald's drive-through, right? And instead of being in the car ordering, they've gotten a wild hair and they've decided to jump on top of the car and order from the rooftop. Okay, so imagine Jack Black on top of that car. We understand how that scene's gonna go down, right? Now put Robert De Niro on there, right? Okay, now what would happen if we put, I don't know, Ryan Gosling on there? Right. Okay, now let's put Jennifer Lawrence up there. That to me is sort of tone. It's how some person's point of view and their take on the situation and the way they react to the world they're in and the way that they're put into that place, how they respond and their attitude about it is to me what sort of sums up tone. So I don't know, feel free to jump in, but that's that's No, my I did point. kind of the same thing once, I, I can't remember what for, but it, I just pulled a bunch of clips of people interviewing for a job. Yeah. yeah. And you know, one is from um, the Matt Damon uh, movie, oh my God, the first one he did. Goodwill Good. Hunting. Remember when they switch out who's going to go to the interview, right? And it's with his socks and he's laying back and he's like, let's talk big money, right? And it's just, it's in a, it's in a drama movie, but it, it has a certain tone that fits with that movie, you know, versus 
Um, and it's funny because now that you're saying it, it is a lot of actor based because now Tom Cruise in the firm doing it, right? Yeah. He's going to get that versus Aaron Brockovich and Julia Roberts doing it because she needs this job because her kids are starving, blah, blah, blah. Like they're all three interviews, but the tone of those movies start to shift around. So when you're picking the movie, you're trying to pick, I guess my big point too is you're not picking the plot of the movie for tone. And this is what everybody gets mixed up about. The plots, it's you're picking the tone of the movie when you give a reference. Yeah, no, totally. We were working on a basketball movie a while ago and like every comp the writer kept bringing in was another basketball movie. And I'm like, no, because this is about a guy whose family doesn't approve of him. There are like 5 million other movies about family strife that are actually better comps because it's not about basketball. Yeah, like ordinary people basketball movie. I'm like, I got it. Yes, yeah, exactly. So it's it's definitely about like what's at stake, what's the character going through. That is closer to what tone is versus actual plot. But I will jokingly also point out like there's a giant difference between Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Nosferatu. So sometimes tone really is the key. Right. <laughs> you can I, have the same plot. Um, I think like asking yourself as the writer, what is the primary target emotion I want the audience to feel? Because it's like, um, there are murder movies that are hilarious. There are mo murder movies that are tragic. There are murder movies that are pensive and contemplative. And I think like, if you put yourself in the theater and you're watching it, how are you feeling while you're watching it? And I think use that as a barometer while you're writing to see if that's what you're generating. Does that feel right? I think absolutely. so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, go ahead, Meg. I, mean, I would say absolutely, because you're going to have all different, you know, people, I know the writers are going to be like, well, we got to have different feelings. Well, of course, but what's the, like what you said is the overall, the kind of main uh, emotion uh, or tone that is being uh, set up in that movie. And I think also in that vein, it all goes back to your voice. Again, it's like your attitude about the topic, right? And that's that's to me the, the biggest part of a young screenwriter finding their way as you guys have talked a lot about is, is the sooner you can sort of start to wrangle your voice and your POV, the stronger your work is and the more the, the audience knows how they're supposed to feel because you're taking them on this really great ride. Yeah, through the tone of that character, who, and often I, I do uh, I do sometimes reference an actor for the very amazing ex uh, example that you gave. As soon as I say Jennifer Lawrence, that's a different tone that she's bringing as an actor. Though once when I worked for Jodie Foster, the guy was like, so, you know, the actor, like a Jodie Foster. And I was like, yeah, don't do that. But <laughs> don't not, do that. not to the actual actor. <laughs> yeah, don't do you that. You kind of figured if you're here pitching to her that that is what you're doing. But a lot of people ask me if you should give away the ending in your short pitch. And there's, of course, two schools on this. There's the group who are sure you absolutely should never, ever give away your ending because what you're supposed to do is want people to ask to see the script and leave them wanting more and all that. And then there's the group who, like me, think you should absolutely tell the ending. And for me, I just have a couple of different reasons why. I mean, from a producer's point of view, I have so many projects in development. It's just a legal thing. I need to know how your project ends because I may not even be able to look at it if it steps on the toes of something I'm working on. And then more importantly, I actually want to know how it ends because it might help me really believe that you know the conventions of the genre and that you are playing well with others because you're sort of adhering to what people are expecting from an audience point of view, but you've made it different enough that it's got your 
your taste and your voice built in. And then, of course, you know, there's so many platforms out there. Again, we, we want to help them figure out where your project can fit. So giving me a sense of the ending helps me really understand what your movie absolutely is. I mean, there's a lot of times it the ending sort of makes or breaks the decision for my company, whether we want to get into business on something. I mean, by the way, we all kind of know how the story is going to end. I mean, we've been listening to pitches for, you know, 25 years. So, you know, just in case I'd love to know the ending. I often also work at a lot of universities where these young writers and they always, sometimes they can really go off the rails in the third act. So that's another reason I'd like to hear the ending. I mean, sometimes they go off the rails because they're just kind of finding their way and learning story and structure. They might have had a professor encouraging them to be artistic or, you know, pick some sort of out there unpredictable ending. So the reality is you really have to act like a working professional. We want everyone to play by the same rules until they've proven themselves well enough that they don't have to anymore. I'm sure you've heard that in other cases, but in pitching, it can really come through loud and clear. So we want the ending in my office. Um, okay, so I digress. Okay, let's talk about the other kind of pitching. Yeah, the, the big the big pitches, the pitch pitch, as we would probably say, right? Um, I mean, that to, that's such a different machine in every level. So first of all, in today's market, which has shifted dramatically, you know, you really have to only get in the room if you've already sold something sort of in that same space as you're pitching or have a tonal reference that everybody's crazy about, speaking of tone. So you can use that as a sample that gets you in that room. But it's pretty hard to walk in these days, both for TV or for features and sell your amazing idea, unless you've already proven yourself in that space for the most part. And then, you know, what we end up doing for features now is different than it was even five years ago, let alone 10. You know, we generally have to have a director with us as well, or some cool 900 pound gorilla, awesome, real live person it's based on, or the actor who can't wait to be in it or whatever the case is like, it's, it's gotten really hard to walk in as with a terrific writer and a producer only, you know, so there's definitely that happening, but let's say we've gotten all that covered. Let's say we've got all that wrangled. We've got this top tier actress who can't wait to be in her movie. Or, or just as an exercise for yourself, you should be able to pitch it because it'll help you write it. Right. Even yes. if, even just as an exercise, can you yes. pitch this thing? The can whole thing? thing. Yes. And have, have a, have a, a way that your spine of your story, your foundational story is so pitchable that you could do the 30 second, the two minute, the five minute or the 15 minute, and it's all still truthful, right? It's all still being uh, in service of what the, again, the idea, not the story is. Because what we find all the time is, you know, when you go in, you're going to hopefully get 15 minutes, but you may not, right? You can tell their eyes are glazing over. Something else is not really connecting with them. So I always tell writers, even for the two minute, but certainly for the longer one, have that last sort of two or three sentences for the big finish memorized, because it's really fascinating. We've all heard enough pitches at this point that a lot of the executives are already hyperspacing past what is sort of that back half of Act Two anyway. So if you can land it with a great finish that you've gotten memorized, in their brain, they just heard a fantastic pitch, right? It's that whole thing when you're watching a movie and everyone says, oh, the only last 15 minutes really matter. It's kind of the same thing. Um, so for us, we, we work out the whole pitch and we then refine it and pull stuff out that's too clunky. But we take the time to do what is probably, you know, on a regular piece like probably eight to 10 pages 
with the true, and one of the big things we use, and this is true in the two minute or the big one is we use road signs. That's what I call them. I mean, it just depends what, what, who trained you or whatever, but I love knowing by the end of act one, the character believes this, thinks this and knows this. And somewhere around the midpoint where at this point, like I love to sort of know where we are in our pitch, just so that the listener again, isn't freaking out that it's going to go for five hours. But also um, it helps me realize like, wow, we, we've only met the bad guy twice. That's interesting. And we're already at the midpoint. What's going on? Or it just, it just helps me measure what, what's happening structurally, what's happening thematically. So, so I'm a big fan of the, the big road signs when people are pitching. Um, but when we prep, we, we practice the whole thing a couple times. We usually practice in our office. We usually go to the manager or the agent and practice with them as well. And then for us, it's, it's also about tailoring it for each buyer now, right? We're in this place where every streamer sort of has its mandate. All the studios are very specific in what they need. So we stand around in the parking lot a lot afterward and decide what to pull back on, what to dial up on, what to swap out. You know, we probably have like the PG version and then we have the R version. There's a lot of different strategies going in. It's sort of like how you have different resumes for different job interviews. That's kind of where we are. Wow, that's amazing. I did not know that. So yes. that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah. how um, go ahead, Lori. Well, I have a question about we get asked a lot, and I have my opinion about this, but the whole like um uh, preparing a what you call like a pitch document not a document the like images what's that called why can't I think of the word well the there's deck. Like a deck like, like the a pitch deck. deck sorry like a pitch deck like I'm super lo-fi so I just show up with me and my papers and maybe like a picture of the actor except if it's animation then it's then it's got stuff yeah. but I'm, I'm so curious about this conversation about pitch decks for features I know it's probably different if you have a director attached then TV shows, but what's your experience? So, okay. So that you just nailed it. First of all, there's this, the word deck has become this very morphy, multi-defined thing. So there are lookbooks, which I put in a totally different category. It's, it's definitely, that's director driven. It's visual. Even sometimes art directors put those together. I mean, wardrobe and art department people have been putting a version of that together forever. They've come in in the old days, with like big poster boards with all these ripped out magazines. So like that to me is great and helpful and different. And I know directors have gotten jobs by coming in with a great lookbook. So that, that's a, its own little thing. But yeah, this this emergence of decks has become to me fantastic and problematic all in one. You know, I I am like you, I'm lo-fi. I believe deeply, deeply believe that the story should sell itself. I mean, I had a professor in college who at the time the Kenneth Branagh um, Henry V movie had just come out. And he was like, if you need the London Symphony Orchestra behind you playing while you do one of the most famous speeches in all history, you failed. <laughs> and I was like, he's right. <laughs> like, and I've always really stood on that. Like, if you can't come in and knock their socks off with a character you cannot wait to learn more about and a hook that's grabbed me from the beginning, I, I don't know. You can show me a million pictures. It won't really work. So I'm in that space. And then there's this other version of a deck which has emerged out of school. Okay, a lot of the colleges are doing a version where they've decided that building a deck is sort of what we're talking about with building a pitch, meaning build this giant deck and it will help you figure out what your show is or it will help you figure out what your movie is. So from an academic exercise, I love it. I, it's great. It's true. It's, it's what we were doing 15 years ago when we took 25 walks around the block to figure out why somebody would do this thing. But they're doing it visually because that's this generation. 
and that's how they communicate. I just am not positive it's doing anyone any favors if you're leaning on that when you go in to sell something. Now, that being said, we do a lot of foreign sales stuff. And then there's that other kind of deck. I'm telling you, it's crazy where we have to put together the version that's not a lookbook per se. It's more the resume of who everybody is and an example of other financial comps and all this other stuff. And it's some people get all caught up in that. And to me, that's like the producer's job months later. So it's those are the different decks and the different things. But yeah, as a young writer, I, I think I would play around with decks and, and be savvy with them, but I would work more on what is this amazing idea and how can I dive really deep and figure out the most fascinating, cool, innovative way to tell it. Can I just quickly ask about like one more type of deck? Yeah. Just so I'm I'm directing a indie this summer, and we actually went out to someone who's like potentially interested, who like could be a really exciting lead for us, and we have like a 12 page deck with like the log line. It's like and some of the team behind it, and a mood board, and mm -hmm. like you know like a budget avail upon request slide. What about that? Like the send to your team in addition to the script deck to like set the tone? You know, so what we, we have actors asking for some of that, but we generally, instead of sending them like the business side of it, which is more what this sounds like, we try, if we have it, is the other short films the director's made. Cause I'm presuming that's where you are. I was like, the director doesn't have a feature yet to show, but they have other, like that's I'm all about all. showing them footage. Like I'm like, yeah. I'm, you know, the more you can show an emotional journey, which a deck doesn't quite do for actors, I think is the only real way to go. Um, what we've done in some cases is we've built going much closer to what the reality TV world does is we've built like fake sizzle reels. So we've had directors pull like a hundred clips from movies that tonally felt similar or did have plot elements and created like a four minute tra trailer or sales reel from, from all other films, right? Footage from everything else. And that the actors are responding to because that is again, an emotionally engaging piece of celluloid, right? Yeah, um, my husband did one of those. They're, yeah, very, yeah, yeah. they're very successful. They're very they really successful. They really were. So like, I'm a, I think those have a good track record and that doesn't confuse the issue because everybody knows it's that's not, your movie right it's just as what you aspire to and it's for the actors it's very specifically when you're going after an actor you put one of those trailers together exactly and then every once in a while the, the foreign salespeople love those because honestly and this is like with all like this meant in the best way possible a lot of foreign salespeople don't finish reading scripts but they are happy to watch your four minute sizzle reel and decide if they want to try to sell it to you know lithuania or not this, the so. sizzle reel is images from other films put together to tell a story that's similar to the story you would yeah. tell, right? You're not yeah. shooting and cutting. No, and, no, no, yeah, no. You're, you're not spending just... a dime. Now in reality TV, they spend money and they go out and shoot stuff like, oh, we're going to do a reality TV show about this barbecue guy. And we're going to go follow him for a week and cut a sizzle reel. And hopefully we'll sell it. Like that's that version. But the, the feature people have got, done this sort of modified version, which is you just spend a week pulling clips and assembling it with somebody who's like a savvy trailer brain editor, and then you're good to go. Yeah, and it's, yeah, you're actually telling your story. Yeah, like, it's absolutely it's cool. Such it's a really good cool. exercise, even if you're not pitching, what a brilliant exercise to zero in on tone, zero in on comps. Like, I think that is so valuable for our listeners. Even if you're just pulling footage and you're not editing it, I think that's really, really valuable to help you with your story. It is. And what also I want to point out in terms of a sizzle reel like that, or if you're just going to pitch, I find it's really, really important. And Sheila, I'm, I know that you agree with me because we've taught this at UCLA. <laughs> it, it, it's all based on the character's emotional journey. Yep. 
if you look at any trailer, yes, it's going to have the crazy feats of trucks blowing up and all that stuff that we want for our popcorn. I'm not saying you don't have to have your, um, your trailer moments in your pitch. You do. I need to know why it's different and blah, 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 and all the genre stuff. But really, it's the spine of it, the spine of the pitch, the spine of the sizzle reel is I'm going to tell you a story about this guy. Right. And here's what he here was his problem. Here's what he wanted. Here's everything that was against him. Right. In his world. And here's what was at stake for him. That is the spine of the movie. So that and then that main relationship of the movie. I want to feel that relationship in the sizzle reel or in the pitch. Like I was just helping a, a writer friend and his pitch is gigantic. There are so many characters. There's so many world rules. And he did such a good job but I just wasn't feeling it enough. And I was like, maybe even cut back on some of this to say, who is the main relationship? Isn't it with this guy? So when does he meet that guy, right? And how do they like each other? And tell me the pitch based on that relationship evolving because I can hang on to that as you go of what I care about. So it's really important when you're pitching to tell me what I care about. Um, so Sheila, I just wanted to throw that out there because I know we've talked about that when we were teaching, but I just, I thought that was super important it's too. huge. And one of the biggest things that like in all the, all the big loud sort of movies I've made, what we've started to really focus on to exactly what you're saying, Meg, is if you really do your job, if you're really thinking it through the big loud set piece thing is also part of their character growth they come out of that slightly changed, right? And if you do three or four of them during the body of act two, by the end of act two, they've changed enough, right? They change a little bit in each one of those big, crazy emotional things or the teeny tiny ones for an indie movie. It kind of doesn't matter. I feel like in the old days, there were set pieces for set pieces sake. There was explosions because they were cool or they robbed the bank because it was fun or they jumped off the bridge or whatever. But now I'm like, no, no, you know, audiences are hoping and wanting more. So if you're going to jump off that bridge, you do it from character. Right, so if you're pitching... Uh, door, uh, if you're pitching Nemo and she says, I think we're supposed to go up and he's like, I think we're supposed to go down and under. And he's like, you're an idiot. We're going up. And then we're going to have this scene with all these incredible jellyfish. And you're going to tell me how beautiful it is and how fucking scary it is and blah, blah, blah. But what's really happening is he has attached to her and he is going to risk his life to get her through those jellyfish. And then he's going to come out the other side and meet turtles, right? Like, but that relationship with her is showing what, and, and that he is taking on what he's most afraid of. And so it really is all in that beautiful set piece, you're going to tell me, but it's emotionally has some context and grounding in the character. I just think it's so important because if you can pitch and I care about it, oh my God, you're halfway to sold, right? Um, or more, right? Because the, the, the other stuff is just not, their eyes are going to glaze over. They just are. Um, so let's just talk before we leave the pitching space about, um, Bibles, because it's the other question we get a lot of, do I need a Bible and be ready when I pitch? My last experience pitching a TV show was I didn't have to have an actual Bible, but I had to know it. I had to be able to tell them season two in a big way is this is what's going to happen to the character season three. And then I did all that. And then the producer who's with a huge production company was like okay and now you need to tell me the last scene of the last episode of the whole show (laughs) and I was like what but why are they asking that because they want to know where these relationships end up right so that season five right now we could close the show at season five and this is what's happened with what happened in the there in the pilot that I pitched you this is where it ended up five years later those characters the world all that stuff 
And I, at first I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're asking me to do that. But it actually helped me know the show yeah. because I knew where it was all going. So it really helped me know the show. So at first I cursed them and then I thanked them. Um, what's your experience with Bibles and that whole development process? So I think you're spot on. I, I feel like the Bible is, is the written version of what we were just talking about with these sort of bigger decks that people are using to sort out all these things, especially in TV because the landscape can be massive and ongoing. So yes, it's exactly that. People in most cases are, are more than ever doing Bibles without getting paid as they're building what is a pitch and they are very different. I'm sure you can speak to that. Like the Bible is the Bible and you're figuring out all these little nuances and all these facets and all these little bits and pieces, but the pitch is going to be a completely different standalone thing. Yet the pitch would have never been that pitch had you not done the Bible. Right. And same, if you're doing these now um, early decks to, to explore and play around, same thing. So we are not handing in Bibles when we go into pitch TV, we're just pitching the show. And if they wanna see a Bible or to your point, you have to know it because that's why you're pitching it. You can answer 50 more questions easily. Like you don't even sweat the questions because you've got it all sorted out. And then later in a perfect world, you'll have that Bible mostly done when they pay you and ask you to do one. So it's, you know. I just want to, I want to do a little bit of context here, especially for emerging writers, but honestly, my brain does this too. Sometimes I hear this stuff and I get overwhelmed and I feel like I'm sinking because, oh my God, it's almost like it's just more opportunity for me to fail. It's just more opportunity for me to not know. It's more opportunity for the show to fall apart. And my response to that is, yes, that is true. I'm not going to bullshit you. It is true. But that's why you're doing it. Because on the other side of that fail, which it isn't a fail, it's actually exploration, is new stuff, is bigger, better version, is deeper stuff, is stuff that you right now can't even imagine in your head because you haven't gone through that dark wood. And you, it, the reason Sheila and producers, they want this stuff is because they want the gold on, in that dark wood. And you have to do it to, in order to get the depth and the clarity and the sizzle and the spark right? It's not just to quote unquote, sell it. It's to become that writer you want to be. And I, even as a pro, there's times that I'm like, oh my God, if I start doing that, this whole thing's going out the window and it's going to be so depressing because I spent so much time on this already, which is why when she said, what's the last episode of the last season, last scene, I was like, ah, but when I did it, I was like, oh my God, I just understood it in such a deeper way. It's even hard to describe how much I understood it better. So don't get overwhelmed and feel like, oh my God, I'm not a writer then because I don't want to do all this. Okay, most writers are like, can I just write? Can I just like write a great story and then somebody else go do all this? I hear you, I hear you. I feel the same often, right? But this is the process and I promise you, I promise you on the other side of it is gold is you really, you're going to evolve and it's beautiful. And it's so fun when you get that last scene and you're like, that scene kicks ass, right? It's so fun. So please don't, when she's talking, when producers are here, people in the business are talking like this, try to lean into it and find it, find the, the fun for it, the fun of it. it it's fun, your storytelling, right? Try to find the fun of doing a pitch deck or the fun of getting clips together for a trailer or the fun of what's the last scene or the fun of knowing all of those 
uh, season. So I don't know, Lorian, am I crazy that I feel this way? Maybe it's just me. No, I mean, when I hear this stuff, my big fear is it will unravel what I already have, what I've worked on so hard to nail down and to understand that if I start to dig a little deeper in this direction, all that I have is going to fall apart. Ultimately, yeah, I have to keep rebuilding until I, until it totally makes sense. And you can get to that last scene, but every time you jigger, noodle, mess around, think it has the potential to, you know, you pull the Jenga thing out. How many metaphors was that? It's like a hundred <laughs> metaphors I just smashed into there. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fear in continuing because you think I wrote the script, I'm done. That's it. But he, yeah, like, yeah. so, so, so Sheila, have you had that experience with writers where it started to fall apart as you went deeper? But, you know, like, what's the producer view of that? Yeah. So, so also, by the way, just to add one more <laughs> element to this is, so there's also the old, old, old fashioned real version of Bible, which is that's the ongoing working document that shows have while they're in production so that new writers come in and understand what the backstories are. So, so we're also using Bible a couple of different ways now it's gotten so spread out, but anyway, back to the actual question, <laughs> which is, so yeah, you know, what we, what, what happens a lot of times when the writers do start to think that they're drowning and that they're getting overwhelmed with all the, the work, we take a break and do a different version of this, which is for me, in order to really sell a show today, not only do you need to understand and know the audience, you also need to have such context with respect to like, well, you know, what kind of music plays that matches this show? What kind of people, if people want to watch the show, what kind of books does this audience read? What kind of other magazines would they love? So we actually like take a week or two to be like, let's do a soundtrack. Let's figure out what these sort of, you know, books that are about the same topic and how well they were received. And we sort of delve into other ways to get re-excited by that idea. And it also, again, when we're answering questions later in the room, it really helps because there's nothing an executive likes more than someone who's a better expert on this topic who loves it that much. So what we found was if you step back a little bit and then you can sort of oh, well, wait, maybe this character would love this song. And wait, during that scene, maybe they're having a fight and that's going on. And like, suddenly you start talking about the story again and you don't even realize you're doing it, which is the best Jedi mind trick ever. And, and, and then everyone gets reinvigorated. And before you know it, you know, we, we have writers who I thought were done, like literally done, like out of gas. I didn't want to work anymore because I just didn't want to break them. We were all good. And then like a month later, I'd get a draft that they like polished on their own. And it was super exciting because something, you know, in that break made a difference. So, you know, one of the other big things I always try to encourage young writers is, and it's hard sometimes because you're trying to still make a living, probably at a different job while you're waiting to be a paid working writer. So you're juggling a lot and maybe family, but the, the more projects you can be working on so you can just like bounce around really helps, you know. Even somebody like Scott Frank talked about like way back early days before he became such a well-known writer, when he didn't have anything new to write, he just went back and rewrote old scenes to make them better. And I think that's one of the reasons he's like the most versatile writer out there. So I also try to do that, you know, take breaks, come in a different door, try different scene work, work on all your entrances and all your exits, see how you can improve those. What happens then? You know, so it, it, it's hard, but my job as a producer is to help keep, like we do our best to keep the same writer on all the way through, all the way to the end of our movies. It's not our thing to replace people. Our thing is, is to like find how we can get the best out of them and we can all have a great time doing it. That's awesome. One thing I should clarify is for the longer pitch, uh, we're really talking just about 
pitching features. I mean, when you're at the place in your career when you can pitch a full TV show, that's a whole different ball of wax. And I think we're not going to get into that today. So one of the big things I know we also kind of wanted to quickly talk about is, so for many, many years, I was part of the Fox Diversity Writers Lab, right? For almost a decade, a, a woman named Kelly Kolchek and I were the essential showrunners in the room, helping 10 writers uh, get through writing an original pilot, then doing a table read, then doing a rewrite, then pitching it to the networks, right? And what we realized really quickly was the whole point of every every one of these labs around town, they all sort of have a different mandate, but the Fox mandate by far was a combination of not only just staffing them, but making them employable beyond the fact that they were a diversity hire. Like that was our big thing, right? Because there's a whole loophole for the first two years, you can be a diversity hire and the studio covers your costs and the show doesn't have to pay for you. But there's a really weird strange glass ceiling at the end of that second year that a lot of diversity writers have trouble getting past, right? So our goal was to like, oh, we're going to make you so ready to be in the room that you are going to hyperspace past that little glass ceiling, right? And when they had to pitch to the network at the end of this lab, I mean, it was very clear, they're not going to sell that pilot for a thousand reasons, right? First of all, they wrote it in five seconds. So that's really hard. Second, there's only like limited number of people who can actually be amazing showrunners and write a pilot like that. And then third, they're just baby writers. So they've got to get into the machine and prove that they can actually like deliver a draft in seven days kind of thing. So what we realized was when they had to go in and pitch to the network in that two to five minute pitch that we were talking about earlier, but generally in sort of a genre space, because in some ways TV is very genre because the algorithm has to be like really aligned with what the audience wants because it has to be repeatable every week, right? So we were like, okay, how do we make the most of this pitch? And the reality is they had to pitch their, their way of getting into that story as the reason the story came to be at all. So uh, without sort of naming names or getting super specific, but like we had a young woman who came in and she pitched an amazing cop show, like the, like it sounded like, you know, sort of your good a mix between like Castle and Bones. So it was like a fun, upbeat, two-hander cop show set in gentrifying Highland Park in LA. And then there was also like the side story was a gang leader who had, was in jail for the last 10 years and he'd been running the gang through his little brother who was still on the streets. So it was like the cops plus the the gang and it was going to be like a Cain and Abel story plus these two cops but the real crazy part is the female cop has a 14 year old kid so it's really hard to be a homicide detective in this town so this young fox writer who's amazing and smart and had been a writer's assistant already is trying to sell this you know her and this show and how someone could staff her and she did a mic drop moment at the end of that little pitch that I just gave you like she basically pitched just that and then she goes and if you want to know why I'm the person who can write a cop show with a Cain and Abel crime drama in the middle of it with a 14 year old kid is because I am her when I was this you know 14 years old I had a baby with the biggest gangbanger in LA and my parents still don't know that that's the father and that is why I can tell this story. And like, all I know is like, everybody wanted to staff her, right? Like that was just how it goes, right? And so it was, it was, it was all about her baggage making that genre work. Just chills yeah. all up and down. It's the most beautiful story I've ever heard. That's well, incredible. I have, a, I have a question about that in pitching. So sort of the way I've approached that is I start with, here's my story and then I get into it. But I mean, it's probably very pitch specific and audience specific of how do you sell yourself 
and your story and the specifics of it, like at the end of the pitch, at the beginning of the pitch. Yeah, no, it is totally, for us, it is pitch specific and you have to bring your like Dame Judy Dench to the table and decide where is the best moment to bring it. Because it told, again, it's all about context, right? So how do you want the listener to, to feel? In her case, you wanted everybody to be like kind of sucked into this cool, easy two-hander, castle type of crop show, no problem. But you're looking at this like very perky, very cool, very capable young woman and you're you're like, ah, why is she writing this really kind of weird, dark gang? And then she's like, this is why. So it helped. It raised all the questions for the listener. So it was great to throw it in at the end. Sometimes we have people throwing it at the middle. Like it, it very, very much is pitch dependent. You know, I, I, I can tell another one if you want me to. I don't know if you like these. I know we're going long, 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 but. Tell another an one. We had another one and um, I tell this one a lot. So I hope he's okay with it, but I think it's amazing. So we had a young writer who had lived in many different parts of the world and he was an army veteran and like tall and handsome and just such a capable, amazing pitcher, like just so strong and walked in and sort of owned the room personality. And he is um, obsessed with old history shows, like loves to research the hell out of everything. And he, for the Fox Lab had written an hour long drama set at turn of the century New York. It was sort of similar to the Nick, you know, that Clive Owen hospital show. And this one was about a woman who, um, Back then women could have a physician's degree, but you were not allowed to treat patients. So you had to work behind the scenes, you had to work in the labs or whatnot. So he wanted to tell a story about someone who was so formidable and so good that they ultimately had to let her see patients, right? And he decided to frame the entire pilot around the typhoid Mary reveal, which he was positive, you know, all these men took credit for it, but he was positive a bunch of women working in the labs were the ones who ultimately did the detective work and, and figured it all out. So he, um, he, he was raised by his older sister. So one of the big things that was interesting was this character was really acerbic and really pushed back a lot. And like, I'm super Midwestern and I don't know if I'm a woman trying to get by in a man's world in 1906, New York, I don't know. I would have probably played it a different way. Right. I, I don't know if I would have been so in this guy's face, but for him, it really worked. So we were like, you know, you're going to have to address this when you pitch to Fox because she reads like almost she's so problematic, like you would want to kick her out of the hospital. So you got to you got to cover your bases, man. And he's like, I got it. I got it. Because again, he owns the room. So he walks in and he's like, hey, I'm Ia. So I just wanted to tell you about my story. Um, my mom had worked three jobs. So I had a sister who raised me and she worked nights at the hospital. And, you know, so she used to like put me to sleep before she went and I had her, I loved hearing like the grossest, bloodiest, worst hospital stories. It was my favorite thing. I loved it. And she was a hero to me. I loved all the amazing lives she saved. It was, it was so cool. And then one day I got to go to work with her and I listened to how the white doctors talked to her and I, I didn't even recognize my sister, how, how her behavior and how they treated her just didn't fit with what I knew to be this amazing, smart hero. And then later on, she got married. And that was also really hard for me to watch because she also was sort of different around her husband. And, and so when I created this character of this woman who had to fill a certain role in order to survive in 1906, I just wanted to create a character who never got small. And that was all that I needed to hear, right? I mean, it was just a really beautiful way to understand why this character had to be the way they were. I am crying, just so you right. know. Right, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> so, so this is what we spent many, many hours working on being like you for TV, especially are, are it's sort of like casting a play. We are casting you and your story and your heartache and your joy. And that is where we fill you into a spot in this staff. So the more vulnerable you can be and the more you can identify where those characters are really coming from and they're very genuine and really organic, the more likely a showrunner knows that if you have to write a draft in that short of time and do an outline that quickly, you've just got it. You're bringing it with you. So that's why way earlier in the early part of the podcast, I'm like, know your baggage, like, like use your baggage. It's, it just helps to just carry it around with you all day. Wait, well, it is, it is the source. Let's talk for a quick second about how you should break down your pitch, how much time you should spend on each section. After looking at a lot of pitches, both short, long, TV, in the room, at a party, all over the place, they seem to land in the same percentages no matter what the length. So in my analysis, and this is just the world according to Sheila, you should spend around 30 to 35% of your pitch, again, whether it's the two minute one or the 20 minute one, around 30 to 35% should be spent setting up the world, the characters, the state of affairs. Is it famine? Is it political strife? Is it rainbows and unicorns? Is your character in a good place, in a bad place? Whatever the case is. You could spend maybe 40% if it's a science fiction setting or a really, really unique world that demands a little bit more explanation. Then generally another 40% for act two. Be sure to try to mention where the midpoint is just so they know where everything is landing. But you can, if you've done a great job setting your world up, you can usually pop through act two pretty efficiently, naming set pieces and situations that push the story and grow the character. And then you're going to quickly get to that third act and you only have a little bit of time left, but that's fine because again, the people listening to the pitch, if you've done your job in act one, we basically know where it's going and we already know the tone, the character, the antagonist. So we just want to know quickly how uh, that character's changed, what they got out of it, have their you know wounds healed. So essentially we want to track their growth, both the emotional growth as well as the tangible external drive. And then we're in pretty good shape. And then if you've done all that, what's great is they won't have the boring questions to ask you about what's the tone. They'll have the really juicy questions to answer. And then you get to be the expert and have a really casual conversation instead of like the panicked stress of pitching something. So Sheila, can you talk a little bit about taking a general meeting? Right. So, so I think it's so hard for writers to remember that the reason you're getting the meeting is because they already like you. They've already read or watched something and that you're going in on the advantage. And it and everyone is a lot of times very nervous and sort of overperforms when in fact, it's definitely much more for me to be, uh, I'm trying to decide if you play well in my sandbox. I know you play well with others. You've made something cool or you've written something cool and I'm, I'm dying to get to know what your thing is. But to me, the big thing that I think makes or breaks a general is really when they are trying to talk to you about projects they have and whether you might want to come in and rewrite them or whether you might have a take on them, some writers start to panic because it doesn't fit what their vision of their next year looks like or it doesn't feel like anything they've ever written before. And like we can feel the panic, right? So I think that what makes or breaks the room is, is hiding the panic or trying to hide it when you really aren't hiding it as opposed to being like, wow, you know, I don't know if that's going to land with me because I, and then 
here's what it is. Share more about what moves you. And not in this like overly aggressive, hire me, hire me way, but be like, you know, I usually write stories about somebody who's lost, who figures out a new path. So that doesn't really sit with me. So knowing more about sort of what your thing is in generals, I think works both ways. So it helps them decide, oh God, everything in our library doesn't really match. But what we've also had good luck with was the more we can figure out sort of what makes you tick and creatively what brings you to your best, four months later is when I'm like, oh my God, you know, that, that, that she is like, that's her thing. We should call her with this because we had enough time to get to know her in the meeting to figure that out versus just this like stumbling through us pitching 40 things and them trying to figure out women. And like, mm, no, I just want to hear like some crazy story about last, last weekend and why you got mad at your husband this morning. And, you know, I have writers that like literally land jobs because of that kind of stuff all the time. Like they walked in and they were supposed to be meeting on a book. And instead they were like, I'm sorry, I'm not focused. I'm not focused. I had a fight with my mom earlier. It's still sitting with me. Let me just have a glass of water. Hold on. And like the executives are like, tell us more about the fight with your mom. This is interesting. Right. <laughs> like, it, it, like truly, like it's, it's more than you'd imagine. But so I, I feel like, I don't know if that's helping on how generals run, but that's my thing is like, it's more about really be you and give us stuff that we can remember when you leave. Which is authentic, right? You're not performing it, that you don't want the performing seal. You want the authentic person to show up in the meeting. Mm -hmm. And what you said too, about being able to articulate what kinds of stories you gravitate toward. I like stories about characters who confront their demons. I like characters who, you know, that in a sort of broad way, because that can encompass so many different kinds of IP or ideas. Um, but it feels like you're closing doors, but really you're opening them, right? Just that like, you know, at, at working at Pixar, I'd get a lot of the, I just want to work at Pixar. I don't care what I do. I'll be a janitor. And it's like, well, are you a janitor? You know, like you can't just come in and just get in the door. Like, what do you want to do? Who? Because it, what are you going to give back to Pixar is you and you're going to yes. show up every day and be that thing. And it's the same with writing, right? Like you're going to show up every day for this producer or with this producer and create something and bring yourself. So they have to know what you're bringing. And uh, I really, I, I find that really true. And sometimes as a writer, like when you get pitched something and you think, well, I can't say no, but you know what, actually saying no, sometimes makes them want you more like, Gosh, and, and if you don't know what it is you do well, or you don't have that yet for yourself and your writing, go look at your scripts and what is the character's movement? What world are they in? Do you see a commonality? Do you see a commonality of thematic or stakes? Ask your friends if you can't see it, because sometimes you can't see it on your own. Look at your fav three favorite movies. It's all in there, you know? And it did take me a little while to be able to say that. Um, but it's good to be thinking about it. So when it arrives and you have clarity. Um, and you need to be the, oops, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say also what I really encourage everybody, the more precise you can be, the better. Like the big example is, so a couple of weeks ago, I was working with a lot of indigenous, amazing indigenous creators out of Australia. And, you know, that is an interesting community and there's a lot of broken homes. So many of them were raised only by a mom. So three writers out of like eight essentially were like, I like to write stories about strong women. And I'm like, mm, what kind of strong women? Like each one of you, I'm sure has a very different definition of what a strong woman is. So the more precise, the better for us to really make a match. That's awesome. That's, That's great. really good advice. great advice. All, All right. right, here we go. Here are three questions. Ready? Sure. What pisses you off about this business? 
the fact that you need to check in with people so much. <laughs> what do you mean? Wait, you ha- cannot leave it there. What do you mean? <laughs> Everything. You got to bug people to see if they read the script, if they're going to buy it or not. You've got to check in on writers to make sure that they're not losing their mind over the outline that is killing them. Or you got to check in on a writer so that they know that you're the right producer for it instead of going into somebody else because you didn't check in enough. It's just like checking in all over the place, always, you know, I have to check in with my partner. Did you read that? I read it. I love it, but I need you to love it too. We can't get back to him until you've read it. Like I'm checking in with everybody all the time. Constant. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. Okay. 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 Um, Okay. You go ahead, Jeff. You ask the next one. Uh, I'd love to ask you, Sheila, what gives you the most joy about this business? Oh, for sure. I mean, this is a room of, of mentors and teachers by, by a thousand. Like I, I became a far, far, far better producer working with the next generation by far. I did realize I did explain stuff. I did explain it 15 different ways, not because they were dumb because their brains just work differently. So the more I figured out how to connect with all these different types of artists only helped me go back to my office and do better at my job. So I love the mentoring part. So good. Okay. Last one is if you could be remembered for one scene in a movie that you helped create, which would it be? Um, we made a really sweet little Australian family movie that um, featured a uh, grandma who had passed away. And there's a moment where the husband, who's the grandpa, and the granddaughter are sleeping out under the stars and they talk about seeing grandma up in the stars. And I love it still. So what, tell us the name of the movie because everybody, oh, I, I called, love this. It's called Oddball and you can find it on every streaming ever. And at one point, the grandpa character says, I miss you madly. Uh, so go watch Oddball. Aww. It's a really adorable, yeah. amazing film that Sheila made in Australia. That we made breaking every rule of film school ever. You're never supposed to do. We shot it at night during the winter time outdoors with multiple animal breeds and children Yay. and it was still a hit <laughs> and it was still a hit Woo! it was amazing <laughs> very sweet yeah Sheila thank you so much for being here and it's been an amazing amazing time I you know I just selfishly love being back in your space with your big brain and your heart and all of your incredible experience and insights um, just really amazing amazing I love this. Thank you for including me. I I was really flattered that you asked. Oh, come on. We're all so lucky. Um, And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group, um, uh, The Screenwriting Life. Uh, Lots of great stuff going on in there. Groups forming. It's super fun. So go and take a look. And in our next episode, we're going to be getting into boundaries. What are they? How to make and keep them for your characters and your writing life. I'm really excited to find out what we're going to talk about. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so keep writing and remember you are not alone. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.